Lillian, I've got a question for you. What is up? Lillian? Yes? Have you ever failed a test so bad that you thought you were God? Um, I I don't think failing and godliness are really connected, so I'm going to go with a no. Mm, you sure? I am sure, but I have failed some tests before. <laughs> well, maybe you'll find some kinship with the uh, main character of this story then. about incompetence. Each week I tell a friend of mine a story from history involving massive incompetence, and this week I have... Is it three-time or four-time returning guest Lillian? It is the third time, because we talked about murderers, and then we talked about decapitation with slides, and now we are here. (laughs) And now we're here. Here in this wonderful space. Mm, cyberspace. Yeah. This this one you asked for you you asked for kind of a wide range of stuff for your next story, but one of them was a story from the history of China. Am I correct? That is correct. I actually love Asian history. Um, one of the things I studied in college, but it's not like I'm going to remember any of it because it has been a while. So have fun. <laughs> well, uh, last time on Big Time Whoopsies, we discussed. I discussed with. Liam, the Chinese civil service exams? This is... I actually listened to it on my way home. So, like, within the last hour, that was that was in my ears. Oh, it's very fresh, then. Yeah, I actually remembered some of that from class. I was like, I remember the five books. I didn't remember the name of the five books. But I had that down, and I was like, I remember getting an A on this exam when I was talking about the exam. <laughs> nice. Well... You don't need to have listened to the previous episode to understand this one, but it would probably enrich your experience, listeners. So if you're listening from home, maybe go do that. It's actually very interesting as well. I would highly recommend. And also, McAdams Guest, very good. Shout out to Liam, Major Cast co-founder. Yeah, I don't know. Go listen to it. Also listen to Lillian's previous episodes. They're pretty good. I mean, they're okay. Oh, I think the Schlitterbahn one's pretty good. Oh my gosh, that one killed... Well, I was gonna say me, but them too. <laughs> yeah. Alright, you ready to get started? Yes, sir. Hong Siu Kwan was born on the 1st of January, 1814, in Guangdong, China. Born to a family of farmers, Hong nevertheless showed interest in scholarship from an early age. Because anyone could do it, as we have learned. Yeah. The Chinese government being what it was at the time, this meant that he would need to study from the age of five onwards with the goal of passing the civil service exams. Yeah, that's a that's a hefty goal. Yeah, who would send their kids to school at the age of five? I know, it's ridiculous. They should be farming and tending to sheep and cows. Five-year-olds should be working, damn it. I know, it was terrible when they got rid of those laws in America. They mm. had such, you know, nimble fingers, right? They could fit into small spaces. That's what it was. Do intricate machine work. 
So I won't go into detail about the civil service exams because I did that last episode, but they were extremely demanding, requiring applicants to memorize the four books verbatim and write complex essays about them. Not just the four books, there was more than that. Anyway, the exam process started in a boy's teen years and had several tiered stages. Only about 1% of applicants passed and became eligible for government jobs. Which is the opposite of what we have today. (laughs) Fun fact. Hung was able to recite the books he needed to recite and seemed destined for greatness as he, when he placed first in his local college exams. He then waited for the imperial exams, which only occurred once every three years. If he passed this, he would enter into the government and essentially be part of the highest class of China's citizenry, the scholar bureaucrats that made up the majority of the government. Essentially the, the greatest thing a peasant could accomplish in his lifetime. Notice that I say he because women were not allowed. I couldn't get over that during your last episode, and I still can't. Yeah, having a daughter instead of a son was considered worthless. Which is crazy because, you know, carrying a child is freaking insane, and so Mm -hmm. you should be more proud to be a woman. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's the way the society worked. God bless. After performing so well in school as a teenager, Hung took the imperial examinations in Guangzhou and failed. This was not unexpected, obviously, but he had to return home and work for his family's farm after this because they didn't have the money for him to continue studying. So then he went as, like, a 15-year-old to the sheep and cows. Yeah. Uh, After working with them and then also traveling around a bit, he also got a job as a school teacher. (laughs) It's just funny because the exams are so different from real teaching. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Like I said in the exams, teachers were not valued despite the exam system being, you know, of the utmost importance. Graders were valued, not teachers. So the timeline is a little wonky here because I think some of my sources misunderstood the difference between the school exams and the imperial exams. Like I have some saying that he took the imperial exams twice in two years, which is impossible because they only happen once every three years. But basically, Hung kept uh, retaking the imperial exams and failing. Do better. I mean, it's not like you're not with 99% of the population, dude. I mean, it's just like trying to get accepted to Brown only way harder. (laughs) I feel like, you know, sometimes it's okay to go to your safety school. Sometimes it's okay to be a farmer. Sometimes it's okay to go to your safety school, the farm. (laughs) Excuse me. He tried a second time and failed again. In this trip to Guangzhou, he had his first brush with the alien ideologies of Christianity, receiving a set of translated pamphlets written by a man named Liang Fa. I think, wasn't it recently that um, the Pope has accepted Chinese Catholicism because it's it's a state-run religion, so that's quite interesting. I, I don't know much about Catholicism in this day and age, so I can't really say. Well, it's different because, again, like, the Pope oversees the, the church throughout the world, except in China, where it's supposedly state-run, so it has fewer connections to the Vatican. But it, I believe recently they're forming that bond now. Sorry, side note. Yeah, no, no, it's it's good. I didn't know it. My lis- my listeners might not have either. Fact check me there. <laughs> I, I can't. I don't know. <laughs> so he was given a set of translated pamphlets written by a man named Liang Fa, which had been uh, translated from a Christian min- missionary, 
these included excerpts from the Bible, tracts written by Liang and his mentor, homilies, and so on. Hong didn't pay much attention at the time, but he did save the pamphlets. As one does. Hong failed again in his third try in 1837. This poor guy. Like, I really admire his motivation. Like, he is going for it. My heart Mm -hmm. goes to him. This time he had some kind of nervous breakdown or depressive fit after failing. Wait, how old was he after the third attempt? 23. Oh, Oh, that... I know that's old for them, but that seems so young. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing about it is, like, you have to remember that for a guy to finally pass in his 30s was considered kind of, like, on schedule. Oh. And to go on his 40s, you're, like, by no means behind. Like, and there were guys who would, who would only pass it and in their 70s. Yeah, okay, so never mind. I don't feel quite as bad. Good for him for <laughs> still trying. Also, these kinds of nervous breakdowns from the stress of taking the tests were not at all uncommon. I feel like that's every test, but this one was super scary. (laughs) Yeah, no, this was one where you literally, like, lived in a ramshackle compound for a few days to take just this test. In a beehive is where they live. That's how I pictured it. Honeycombed, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. That's that's, uh, one of the ways it was described. So he was delirious for days after failing it for the third time, and he claimed that he had a vision. Okay, where are we going with this? In the vision, he met a large old man with a wide hat, black dragon robes, a thick belt, and a long golden beard. Wait, golden? Golden. Okay, I was picturing more like a long silver beard because most people don't have golden hair, but I'm sure it looks good. I have golden hair. Eh, Yeah, but... You're an except. Okay, stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> the man's family was also present in the dream, including his son, wife, and daughter-in-law. The man gave Hong a sword and told him that the people on Earth were worshipping demons and it fell to Hong to eradicate them. <laughs> okay. Hong does not appear to have done much about this vision at first, though, in, though later in life he would embellish it a lot. So the sword didn't come with him from the spirit world to the real world. That's actually disappointing. No, although he did get somebody to make him swords once later on. So then just the thought of it came with him and really, therefore it did. All right. He would try to pass the examinations one last time in 1843 and failed again. Wait, if he's only in his, if he's that young... And only wants to try one more time. Oh, I didn't, I, I don't mean to say that, like, at the time he was taking it, he thought it would be the very last time. I'm just saying this was the last time he took it. Oh, okay. Okay, that's more acceptable than being a quitter. <laughs> you fucking tell him. <laughs> so he failed again, and apparently only then did he take a look at the Christian pamphlets he had received years earlier. Okay, so I've definitely been that guy who takes a pamphlet because I don't want to be rude. Oh, wow. (laughs) Can't relate. You gotta be polite to everyone, okay? I don't think I've taken a pamphlet from one person on the street with a a clipboard. Oh, see, in Charleston... (laughs) In Charleston, they used to have them all the time. And eventually it got to the point where, you know what, actually, I did save them because I would be like, 
hey, I already have this. Don't waste your time. I would literally just make up an excuse or not even respond. I don't know. I feel like, you know, eye contact, being polite, saying no thank you would have been better. Nope, nope, and nope. (sighs) So he looks at the pamphlets now, and upon reading the translated Christian texts, Hung finally realizes what his vision meant. Okay, tell me, what did it mean? You want you don't want to take a guess? Oh, okay. So here's what I'm thinking. Um, our friend here took a little too much NyQuil, which obviously existed at the time. Uh-huh. And then while ballroom dancing in his bedroom, he slipped on a rug, uh, hit his head, and <laughs> then was like, yo... This is a cool dreamscape. What can I learn from this? Is this... No, but what I'm asking is what what did he learn from it? Like, what did it mean? I am getting there, friend. Okay, sorry. Is this my future self? Am I going to turn into a golden bearded man with a wonderful family? Um, The only way I'm going to do this is if I convert masses of people into a designator religion, because this is clearly where the story is going, and... Then I'm going to just go and fight with a sword, but not, not like, to colonize. It's clearly, <laughs> clearly because he turns into a pirate as well. I like this interpretation. I like the future self, like, comic book kind of style narrative. This is not what Hung came away <laughs> thinking. <laughs> I think after it is. The, after reading the Christian pamphlets... Hung realized that the old bearded man was clearly God, and the son that was there was Jesus. This meant, naturally, that Hung was the son of God and Jesus Christ's younger brother. Of course that's what it meant. How did I not understand that? Ugh. Yeah, really, it was, it was all there in front of you, all the pieces. I know, I'm sorry. After this revelation, Hung burned all the Confucian and Buddhist idols and writings in his house. Ooh, that's a big step to take. Mm-hmm. So he immediately won some converts, starting with failed scholars like himself. His first disciples were named Feng Yunshan and Hong Rengan. Hong and Feng, specifically, traveled around Guangxi, burning idols and attracting followers. I wonder, like, how... Was the government okay with that? I guess... They were not. They were not. Okay. Okay. (laughs) The government frequently chased him out of whatever town he was in. That makes more sense. The doctrine they preached was a kind of Christian communism, promising shared land ownership and equality between the sexes. Revolutionary for the time when women couldn't take tests. Well, that wasn't really the thing that attracted followers. What was really attracted to the peasants at the time was the shared land ownership, because frequently they owned nothing. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Thus, the majority of the of their followers were uh, peasants and miners, in, in those early years especially. Mm-hmm. Although there were there were also cases of bandits and deserters joining them. It's the pirates coming back to what I saw. Yeah, there pirates were a thing at this time period. Mm-hmm. No, I I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did an episode about pirates. They're pretty cool. Chinese pirate at the very end there. This was where Hong's legend began to grow, as the stories he told about his vision and the stories that his followers told about him got bigger and more grandiose. Hong said that in his vision he saw God himself chastising Confucius for leading the people astray. 
That's some that's some big talk right there. Yeah, literally he said God whipped Confucius and Confucius whined Ooh. because of it. Like literally He's going up against, like, the main doctrine of China, Confucianism, and went like, oh yeah? Well, my god whipped your guy, and he whined like a bitch about it. Yeah. That's literally what he does. <laughs> that's, that's not a joke, that is what he did. Hong's followers also said that his height and weight had increased after his vision. I believe the weight part, and maybe he just started standing up straighter, you know? Yeah, they also said he, like, his pace was different. His posture was different. Yeah, that's why he got taller. He just he just stood up straight. If you're crunched over a desk all the time, your back's gonna be a little round. So then, <laughs> when you're done failing the test, you're gonna, you're gonna stand up. <laughs> it was also around this time that Feng Yunshan was banished from Guangxi by the authorities. Hong left their followers, which now numbered in the thousands, Solid. to visit Fang in Guangdong. And while he was gone, a sort of power vacuum appeared to kind of take care of their followers. Mm-hmm. It was filled by two men, one, one named Yang Xiuqing and the other named Xiao, excuse me, Xiao Chaogui. Uh, Yang Xiuqing is the one you need to remember. Okay. Each of these men claimed they could go into a trance and channel a member of the Holy Trinity. Uh, I mean, as a failed Catholic, I don't remember that being a thing, so I'm interested. Well, Yang said he could get God himself to speak through him, and Xiao said the same thing about Jesus. So really, they were father and son. I mean, basically, and in a, and in there are situations where, like, when they were speaking in, like, their God tongue... They outranked even Hong Xiuquan. I wonder how he felt about that. Did uh, did he know that he had outranking members of his crew? Apparently, uh, Hong Xiuquan, like, actually confirmed this. He was like, yes, it is God that's speaking through this guy. At least he's consistent. Yeah, I, I think we're gonna, we'll talk more about Hong and Yang's uh, relationship later. Um, but basically, I think Hong was a real believer. He really believed what he was saying was true. And I think Yang was a lot more uh, cynical about it. You know, you have to have a nice balance in life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So their group, which they now called the God Worshipping Society, grew and grew while Hong wrote his treatises on morality and Christianity. And he also translated and edited the Bible. I was going to ask... So were they connected? Is this, like, was it an offshoot of the Bible to make it more contemporary? He did, he did make some edits. There were some, like, changes to some stuff. He, like, cut some stuff out. Um, but they were pretty minor. It's mostly just, you know, the Bible. Oh, okay. And I'm sure there were some mistranslations as well. <laughs> but those are always fun. Yeah. So by 1850, just seven years after he, like embraced christianity he had there were over ten thousand god worshipers good for him right <laughs> it's it's the the greatest mystery of all this is just how he attracted so many followers because this is just the start charisma my friend that year a local branch of the imperial army finally ordered the god worshipers to disperse threatening to kill some of their converts They'd been kind of slow on this because the region they inhabited, Guangxi, was kind of overrun with bandits a lot of the time. 
Okay, still with the pirates. I mean, not necessarily, but I'm connecting them. Yeah, so they were, they just had other stuff to do, and by the time it, once it got to like ten thousand to thirty thousand people, they were like, "Uh, okay, that's big enough. You can stop now." <laughs> I I mean, I'm that's a lot of people. I mm-hmm. how what part of China was it again? Guangxi. Okay. Uh, it's, it's southeast. No, I was just trying to think of like population wise, because I know Western China tends to be more of like rural yeah this is all this is all eastern china yeah okay so that makes more sense number wise then all in the all in the southern half uh in eastern china and we'll get farther to the east in in later installments here so they they the local branch of the imperial army threatened to kill some of their converts uh hong and feng responded to this by urging their followers to rebel as one does that's the fun part of it this led to what is now known as the jintian uprising cool (laughs) the god worshippers joined forces with another group rebelling over a famine and defeated the imperial forces in a straight-up battle misery loves company and battles (laughs) and also war (laughs) when imperial reinforcements came the god worshippers fled north and attempted to take a fort or city for their own their success was mixed taking some areas and getting repelled in others until they eventually made it to Nanjing, which they captured in 1853. Side note, I've heard that that's a very lovely area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know much about Nanjing as it is today. Hong Xiu Quan declared Nanjing to be the seat of his new sovereign nation. He declared himself the heavenly king of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. Okay, I like where this is going. Um, I would also like to have a heavenly kingdom... But I don't think I need a rebellion for one. (laughs) But tragically, I have had no visions in which I revealed to be the sibling of Jesus Christ. This is factual. The conflict he was embroiled in with the Imperial forces then became known as the Taiping Rebellion. You may have heard of this. And this is where we're going to take a break for for an ad for a show on the Major Cast Network, blah, blah, blah. God. Have you ever wondered what happens in the Silmarillion? What does Jinko Jean stand for? And how many people can you fit inside of one? And what the gosh darn heck are the ice capades? We found out all about that shit, so you don't have to. <laughs> I'm Liam. I'm Eric. And I'm Big Papa. Nope, he's God Tom. Damn it. <laughs> and we're the hosts of We Are Experts, a show where we speculate wildly about stuff we know nothing about, only to learn what we were wrong about. Doing research, learning things, making our way in the world. And only wasting your time for half of a podcast episode. Oh, welcome to We Are Experts, the world's only short comedy podcast. Every Friday on the Major Cats Network, or wherever you find fine literature. Or podcasts. So when we left off, I was telling you about what has now become the Taiping Rebellion. Which is famous. I definitely remember hearing about it in one of my Chinese politics classes. Yeah, it would have come up. (laughs) And I remember nothing about it, which Mm -hmm. is really unfortunate because it was a good class. Well, I kind of, I had a similar experience. I, I started researching this and I kind of... I had heard of the Taiping Rebellion uh, in tangential discussions, like, about, like, kind of as related to other things. I've heard, I'd heard it as, like, a predecessor to the communist takeover in the mid-20th century. 
but I had never known the story behind it, and so that's what I'm doing. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I had the same thing where I definitely remembered the Chinese exams. The beginning of communism, I took a whole class on that, which was very interesting. But just that little in-between dot of a rebellion is missing. So I was telling you about it, right? No. No, you weren't. So we, we, we pick up in the new capital of Nanjing, the, the seat of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. Where I will sit, because I am making a new Heavenly Kingdom. Nice. Hong was finally able to enact the heavenly proclamations that he believed would turn society into a utopia. Such as? First things first, his army slaughtered every Manchu in the city, men and women alike. Oh, okay. Yes, sir. (laughs) Then he segregated his citizens by sex and outlawed polygamy. (sighs) Okay, well, he's just off to a great start. He also had limited land-sharing agreements, which is what had turned peasants over to his side. Oh, also, he he outlaws polygamy um, and keeps the genders separate. Except for him and his generals, they had extensive harems. <laughs> it almost sounds like a theme throughout history of men in power being dicks. Mm. So, alongside the limited uh, land-sharing system, there were also other miscellaneous changes to the established law. The Taiping Heavenly Kingdom only grew in numbers for the next three years as they strung together several victories against the imperial forces that half-heartedly tried to dislodge them from Nanjing. What? If they didn't want them there, I feel like you should have wholeheartedly tried to stop them. It's interesting that you bring that up, because I say half-heartedly because while the Taiping Rebellion raged, there were other rebellions that happened concurrently. Oh, so, you know, spread a little thin. Okay. Other rebellious forces also just kind of joined up with the god worshippers. They just became part of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. Build alliances. You know, he's he might be a little cuckoo, but he's got some good ideas. Yeah, there were there was there were a lot of famines going on at this time and people would revolt over famines. So they would be like, "Hey, who's the big name in rebellion these days? Taiping." You know, if you want food, if you want supplies, if you need something, go to the most powerful rebellion. I just I I want to think of a different word for that, but then Star Wars popped into my head and <laughs> it's just I know. <laughs> Things continued like this until 1856, and the conflict which the the Qing dynasty, the imperial forces, they would not recognize it as a war or a civil war. That would give them too much credit. It would make it sound too important. They would just call it like a... They would call it an uprising or some kind of chaos or rebellion. They would never call it a civil war, but it was a total civil war. Yeah, I can see that. On all ends. Yeah, and I said it continued until 1856, because that's when there was a power grab. Woo-hoo-hoo! Known as the Tianjing Incident, multiple high-ranking figures in the kingdom vied for power. You remember that guy, Yang Xuqing, the guy who said he God spoke through him? Yeah, we're friends now. <laughs> uh, he had often clashed with Hong over the leadership of the Taiping Kingdom. As Hong felt that Confucianism was essentially devil worship, and Yang thought it wasn't inherently evil because he wasn't that big a believer in Christianity at heart. Hong was definitely a zealous Christian who really believed what he said, and 
Yang was more skeptical and definitely not above lying to remain in power. Again, it sounds pretty familiar. Yeah, the incident began when Yang plotted for the throne of the kingdom. Yang at this point was the East King, who was subordinate only to the Heavenly King, Hong. And in many ways, he was the most important leader in Taiping at the time. He had the most direct control of the army, and the kingdom's spy network also reported to him. He, like, he really, he was the, he was the best strategist in the Taiping kingdom, and he ran a lot of the administration also. Yeah, well, I, I feel like their first issue starts with having multiple kings within the same kingdom, even if it is, you know, heavenly. Yeah. I believe I believe there was the heavenly king and then there was the north king, east king, south king and west king beneath him. No, you'd need a better hierarchical structure than that, at least in title. You don't want to sound equal. I guess, but there also could be just a translation issue there for us. That's fair. Darn you, Wikipedia. <laughs> I guess. After a big victory, Young feeling his feeling his oats, feeling a little big for his britches, speaking as the holy father, summoned Hong to his residence. And they had a conversation with Yang speaking as God. And God got out that whip that he used previously on Confucius. <laughs> on Confucius. And he just spanked them with it. That, that got a little kinky at the end there. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you about the conversation they had. Is it still kinky? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> Yang said to Hong, as, as God, obviously, You and the East King are both my sons. The East King has made significant contributions, so why is he still being hailed as long live for 9,000 years instead of long live for 10,000 years? Which is what Hong would be. Uh. Hong replied, The East King has indeed made significant contributions by conquering an empire, so he should be hailed as long live for 10,000 years. The Holy Father possessed Yang asked again, Should the East King's son also be hailed as long live for, t- for a thousand years? Hong Xiuquan replied, since the East King is hailed as long live for 10,000 years, his son and his descendants should also should be hailed the same way. But the Holy Father possessed Yang Xiuqing said happily, I'm returning to heaven. Okay, that doesn't sound like one of those schemes or anything. Um, here's what I don't understand. Why does his children, like, why did they get to be just as special as him when they clearly haven't done as much, especially for this heavenly kingdom and the rebellion? They were just born. Oh, they were definitely planning on handing the kingdom over to their descendants, not to any chosen successors or, you know, anything else. That was definitely how this was going to work. It was definitely going to be a monarchy kind of deal. Okay, well, I'll give them hail 5,000 years. I refuse to give 10. Alright. After leaving Yang's house, Hong immediately called three of his generals back from other provinces and told them to kill Yang. Solid, that's exactly what I would have done. They did. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) They also massacred his family, friends, and all the soldiers loyal to him. Oh, that's actually not cool. I mean... The killing took months, and by the end of it, thousands were dead. Jeez. Okay. At one point, at one point, they, uh laid a trap for the remaining men. Hong and his generals uh, set a trap by Hong pretending to arrest two of his generals for their, for their you know, terrible actions and invited Yang's followers to watch as he had the two beaten. 
Why do people want to watch a public beating? What is wrong with that? That's what you did at the time. (sighs) They needed Netflix or something. (laughs) Well, they didn't have it, so... Once the majority of Yang's followers were inside, the beatings ceased, and Yang's followers were imprisoned inside the halls from which they were watching the beatings. The next morning, they were all systematically slaughtered. Ooh, it's like a lobster in a cage. Yep, that's what they did. That's so sad. Uh, The three generals then had a disagreement about whose fault it was that so many were killed, and Hong had two of the generals assassinated, the two that he faked the beating with, incidentally. This guy is really going for it. Oh yeah, no, uh, (laughs) there's a lot of killing and we're just getting started. This was one of the turning points of the war as Taiping's leadership was suddenly extremely shaky because three of their biggest figures were dead. It's almost like you need a power structure with followers instead of killing them all. Um, And reliable, I don't want to say henchmen, but it's the only word that I can think of right now. Generals, mm-hmm. whatever. So they started losing battles, and their success was, their success was a lot more mixed between 1856 and 1860. Oh, it still lasted a good amount of time. The conflict devolved into total war. Do you know what that term means? Tell me. Uh, total war means that civilian targets are acceptable. Ooh. Are. Oh, that's totally not acceptable. Yeah. The Qing Imperial forces killed every member of the Taiping Kingdom they came across, giving no quarter and allowing no surrender. Indeed, if they if they came across anyone speaking the specific dialect that the kingdom was known for, they just killed them. Whoa. Yeah, the the this is this is the Qing Imperial forces coming on strong. Death tolls steadily climbed, both as casualties of war and also because of widespread famine and disease, which in turn caused more citizens to revolt. Yeah, it's it's almost cyclical. Every Taiping citizen was trained to fight, and every Taiping household was expected to have at least one man enlisted in the army. Uh, this is just... this is not a great idea. Yeah, it's not going well all of a sudden, is it? In 1860, the Taiping forces attempted to capture Shanghai, but were repelled. This marked the beginning of the war's final phase, which saw Taiping losing more and more battles, their territory slowly eroding back towards Nanjing. I saw this coming. By 1864, Nanjing was besieged and ran low on food. Which was a big thing for them. Yeah, you need. it turns out they needed it. No. Yeah, actually, Hong kind of agrees with that. Hong directed his citizens to eat manna. Do you know what manna is in biblical terms? I have absolutely no idea. It's God provided for the Israelites. Manna kind of appeared on the ground. It's kind of magical food. It appeared... There there are a bunch of different descriptions of it. Sometimes it's like seeds or something. Sometimes it's like magical frost that you can eat. Oh, oh okay. I mean, I'd like and, some of that right now. I could use a snack. Well, because of the frost thing... Uh, it was translated into Chinese as, like, sweet dew and, and medicinal herbs. Okay. So when Hong said that his people should eat manna, he meant the weeds that were in the palace grounds. Oh, that's like eating a kale salad. Really. So Hong gathered up some weeds from his palace grounds and ate them. He then got sick and died. <laughs> It's not funny that a man died, but you should definitely check your food source. (laughs) 
He was 50 years old. The Taiping Rebellion came to an end that same year. Qing forces then rolled into Nanjing and slaughtered approximately 100,000 civilians. Oh my goodness. There is no way to be sure of the exact death toll of the conflict, but when adding in the famine and disease rampant in China at the time, the more conservative estimates put the final death toll at around 20 million people. Oh, uh... This makes the Taiping Rebellion one of the deadliest conflicts in human history. Why? I'm disappointed in the American school system right now. (laughs) No, because we should know about this. That's yeah, there are some sources that have the death toll rising as high as like 60 or 70 million and some even as high as 100 million, which I don't believe. Wow, but still that that's a big that's yeah. a good amount. It's so many. It's so many people. And I think it's also because the death tolls from famines, diseases and kind of some concurrent rebellions were swept into the Taiping rebellions at the same time. That's fair. So it's probably the better idea to go with the conservative estimate. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. But yeah, one of the deadliest conflicts in human history was started by a guy who thought he was Jesus' little brother. And I had to learn about it from you. (laughs) (laughs) After the Qing took control of Nanjing, they found Hong Xiuquan's burial site and exhumed his body. They then beheaded the body and cremated it. Why did they have to behead it first, though? Later, they shot his ashes out of a cannon so he would not be settled in any one place. Oh, I was hoping it would be like a good thing. Like, you're now floating in the sky, even if you're on the ground in ashes. It was more like a, we were going to punish you for all eternity kind of deal. That's okay. I'd just like to be shot out of a cannon alive. I think that'd be fun. (laughs) That's the end of the story of Hong Siu Kwan. Jesus' little brother. Thank you for telling me that. Um, I won't forget it. (laughs) (laughs) Originally, I was going to tell this story and also tell the audience about the whole exam system at the beginning. That would have been a lot. Yeah, would have been too much, I think. So that's the end of that story. Do we want to get to the pickle? Of course. (laughs) So the uh, at the end of every episode, after telling a story of incompetence on a grand scale, I'd like to tell a little story about competence in an absurd way. And I'm doing an Irish series. Okay. Irish. I went to Ireland a little while back and I learned a few things while I was there. You uh, met some time. leprechauns. The huge. Last time I told Liam all about humanity dick. Lillian, this time we're going to learn a little something about the Book of Kells. Ooh, tell me. Do you know what the Book of Kells is, Lillian? No. Really? Oh, well, you sound surprised. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, no, I am actually a little surprised. Book of Kells uh, is sometimes known as uh, Ireland's greatest national treasure. Awkward. Nope. It's an illuminated manuscript. Okay. <laughs> it's, when is it from? Let me, sorry, let me, let me make sure that I've got my dates right. I believe it's, yeah, it's from the 19th century. Uh, sorry, not the 19th. What am I saying? The 9th century. <laughs> well, there's a bit of a difference there. Yeah, it's it's uh, over 300 pages long. It is all. It is entirely on vellum. It would have taken years uh, by multiple illustrators to create. 
um, and the inks and techniques and all this other stuff were very advanced for the time, mm-hmm. like like that part of uh, the world. So hence, and it's also uh, well preserved enough that you can go and see it uh, at Trinity College in Ireland. Oh, that's cool. All right, so uh, the Book of Kells um, is uh, it's an illuminated manuscript. It's the Bible, um, hence tying into the theme of today's episode. Look at what you did there. <laughs> and uh, there is one page where the devil is drawn in the manuscript. Like, actually drawn, like, artwork? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's, 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 in, he's in the manuscript, and uh, it's, I believe it's the Temptation of Jesus Christ scene. That old uh, one. Yeah, that one. And it looked pretty normal. Like, some of the, some of the pages weren't as well-preserved as others, but no one noticed anything off about this page until they were um, kind of doing maintenance on the on the book. And I believe they ran it under a UV light. And then the devil popped out like the freaky girl in the ring. Ooh. No, but they did find 20 stab marks on the devil oh. in the Book of Kells. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> Yeah, because which means there was at some point in history some guy in Ireland who hated the devil so much that he stabbed him in the book. But maybe it translates from the book to the devil. Maybe it's like a voodoo doll where the devil was like, ooh. I mean, I think that's what this guy thought. I think he's correct. Whoever he was. Yeah. So just in your in your relentless pursuit of making the devil uncomfortable, we salute you, unnamed <laughs> Irish man from antiquity. Good job, guy. Yeah, whoever you are. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks for being on it, Lillian. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't I didn't expect it to end that abruptly, but you know what? I can dig it. Well, the thing is, you don't have anything to plug, so I don't I've, I don't have that kind of winding down period. Oh yeah, that's fair. I uh, live a boring life. I don't I, do. I can do. I can do my plugs if you want. Do it. I am all, all about right. friendship and whatever. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Big Time Whoopsies. My name is Eric McAdams. You can find me on Twitter at Eric McAdams Ugg or my personal website NoCharacterIsSafe.com. You can find stuff that I've written by just searching my name. Uh, and, you know, find me on Paste or Verve Blog or Screen Rant or wherever. And you can find other podcasts I do on the Major Cast Network. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs> and thank you, Lillian. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Major Cast Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major. <laughs>